welcome to the second episode of the Kirsch Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kirschenblatt, and we're going to begin the show with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, they've just finished up a six-day rookie development camp where HockeyBuzz.com writer Michael Agello took in most of the action. He joins me now to give me his thoughts on some of the young guys and what we can be looking at for the 2017-18 season. Mike, how's it going? Hey, Adam, how's it going? Things are going well for me. That's good, that's good. So you were at this camp for most of it, from what you've told me. What are some of the things that stuck out for you at the camp? Of the draft picks, I think the most impressive performer was Timothy Lilligren, who obviously the first-round pick from 2017. In discussing with Lou Lamorello during one of the press conferences, he was very impressed with the poise that Lilligren showed. You know, he's a rushing defenseman, somebody who likes to jump into the offensive attack, and that really wasn't present during any of the uh, the scrimmages. He, you know, made smart decisions, played within himself, didn't make any big mistakes, and you know that was that was something that Lamarell was really impressed by. And coincidentally, like an hour after the camp closed, the Leafs signed Lilligren to an entry-level deal. Other than him, Adam Brooks, I thought, was pretty impressive after scoring over 120 points two years in a row in the Western Hockey League. He's probably going to be a staple with the Toronto Marlies this year. What about Joseph Wall? From what I've heard, that he's probably the brightest goaltending prospect that the Leafs have had probably since Tukarask. Well, I'm glad you didn't say Justin Pogge. I did yeah, that on I mean, <laughs> Wall, I mean, unfortunately, I believe it was Monday, he tweaked a groin. It wasn't a serious injury, but he didn't get a chance to play in the scrimmages. But in drills, he was fairly impressive. Now, it's not a that's not any kind of indication of what kind of goaltender it is, but we saw last year in the World Junior, you know, playing against Canada for Team USA, playing half the games when Tyler Parsons played the other half, that he's got a lot of potential. And I expect him to be probably the starting goaltender for Team USA at the World Junior in Buffalo this December. Yeah, I think he's a pretty good goaltending prospect. I think that the Leafs are not going to rush him. He's probably going to stay another year or maybe two years with Boston College. But I think that you know down the line, things continue to go in the direction that they are. He's probably their goalie of the future. According to Christian Chilton, Jacob Tatura caused quite the stir for the Leafs camp in one of the invites that they brought in. He scored four goals and two assists in the two games that he played. Do you think he's made enough of an impression to maybe gain a contract from the Leafs brass? Well, he did make an impression. He was one of the reporters asked Lou Lamorello if he did, and he said he did. But Tatura's situation is unusual because he's out of the U.S. National Development Program. He's committed to Boston College, and he went through the draft this year as a 17-, 18-year-old and didn't get drafted. So he's still draft eligible. So essentially, I think he came to the camp you know, just to, to learn, just to show his wares, and he impressed I mean, he impressed the reporters. I thought that you know, he, I thought he was the best of the free agent class, and he commented that he's going to BC, where Johnny Goudreau went, where Brian Gianta went, or I think Nathan Gerby went, where they have a history of the smaller player being given a chance and having a future in the NHL. You know, I think that he impressed them enough that maybe he's on the radar for a mid-round pick next year for the Leafs, and the Leafs have been drafting overagers the last few years, so I don't, I don't think it's possible for them to offer him an entry-level deal because he's still draft eligible, though. What would be the Leafs' purpose for inviting a guy that they really don't have a chance to keep if they were to impress in a camp like this? 
I, I think they invited these guys. I mean, one, you have to have players to play against your prospects. Two, I think this is a free look. This is like, okay, come to our camp, learn from our coaches, and let's see what you do. You can watch a player, and the Leafs will be watching Boston College because Joseph Wall plays for BC. So they can follow Tatura during the season and see how he progresses, and he has a good year, then I believe he's 5'6 and 150 pounds. So his physical stature is a, is a consideration, but he did show a lot of speed and showed some scoring ability. So I think inviting him to the development camp was basically let's look and see what he can do, and now we'll track him, and if he continues to progress, then maybe he's on the radar for a draft pick next year. In regards to Timothy Lilligren, he was drafted – the 17th overall, and he, as we all know, he was predicted to be number two before last season started, and obviously, as well documented, he had the mononucleosis to hinder his draft stock. And that's what Lou Lamorello and the Leafs brass has said why his draft stock fell. But the thing is, for me, all the other teams ahead of the Leafs knew that. So what scared teams off uh, from Lilligren? Well, I, I, I've heard, and I, you know, on the uh, Hockey Buzzcast, we have Russ Cohen, who does a lot of player evaluation scouting. And one of the things he, he has said in terms of a factor is the fact that a lot of NHL scouts didn't see Lilligren because of the fact that he had mono and missed part of the SHL season and then missed the World Junior, but he was at the under-18. So it was basically not enough information, and then... A lot of other players like Nico Hishier ended up being the number one pick. He was at the World Junior. He got a lot of exposure. He was at the top prospect game, the CHL top prospect game, and he just got seen more. But the fact that Lilligren played for four teams, didn't play well, I think that scared a lot of people off. But it did, I, you know, I, I think the Leafs, it, 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 it fell right into their hands. He, I think he was the defenseman for, for people who looked at the Leafs and said it's sort of counterproductive for them to make the playoffs in the first, in the first year, that they really need another top five, top ten pick, prefer, preferably a defenseman. You know, they made the playoffs, and the guy who a lot of those people thought they needed fell into their laps at 17. So they really got lucky, and... I know that Lou Lamorello said that uh, he's either going to go back to Sweden or play for the Marlies. I, I think that you know the Leafs want to keep the expectations low. I have a sneaking suspicion that if he has a good training camp, he may end up on the Leafs. But that's just you know right until until training camp, until we see what he does, you know we'll go with what Lou Lamorello is saying. You spoke about Timothy Lilligren earlier and how he signed his entry-level deal. At the draft, he said that he wants to go back to Sweden for one more year before taking on the NHL or North American ice. Lamorello said that it's a possibility for him to stay in Canada or in North America and play with the Marlies. What do you think the Leafs want to do at this stage, and what do you think is going to happen? I think the Leafs, by signing him to the entry-level deal, are hinting that they want him to be with the Marlies. Now, remember the William Nylander situation a couple of years ago, and this was different because Nylander was a free agent who signed with Moto. He wasn't under contract like Lilligren is with Rogel. Nylander played half a year in the SHL, played in the World Junior, and then came over right after the World Junior and played with the Marlies. With 
Lilligren with the contract, they have to make a decision right at the beginning of the year after training camp. Do we want him to play in North America, play in the AHL? Can he handle the AHL as an 18-year-old? The AHL is filled with veteran players. It's a tough league to play. It's not the NHL, but it's a, it's a tough league, and it's a, it's a test for a, for a young def- especially for a young defenseman. Or do we want him to go back to the FHL? And, and that, that's the thing. Last year, he played with four teams at various levels in the Swedish league, and part of it was because of you know he contracted mono early in the year, and then he sort of lost his way and didn't make the World Junior team, so it was, it was a little bit of a mess for him. But I think they saw enough in him that they may want a little more stability and direction, and if that's the case, I think that the, in, in terms of the Leafs organization, you can't do much better than having him with the Marlies under Sheldon Keith and you know, teaching him the right things to do. So I think it's a 50-50 shot. If, if I had to take a guess, I think he's going to play with the Marlies. Is that up to him, or would that be up to the team? I think it's up to the team, but it's, I'm sure it will be in concert with him. I have a feeling one of the things that will be utmost with him, and I, when I asked him a question at the draft, he really wants to play for Sweden at the World Juniors. And, uh, you know, we know and we remember when Nylander, there was a big question mark whether Nylander and Kapanen would be released to Sweden and Finland for the World Junior in Helsinki, and then they allowed them to go, and then Nylander got hurt in the first game. But it was the, the Leafs played a sort of a cat-and-mouse game with uh, until the very end before they decided to let him go. I'm sure Lilligren, he it's something he wants. I think if he goes to play with the Marlies, I think they'll let him go, but you never know. If he goes and plays in Sweden, they'll definitely let him go because he's playing in Sweden. So it's that's going to be an interesting situation to see how it plays out. Now, I want to move on over to the present, with the future being those prospects. With this offseason, they've made some pretty big moves. First of all, do you think they're done? No, I don't think they're done. I asked Lamorello on Wednesday whether he was satisfied with the current state of the Leafs' defense, and he said, for now, yes. I mean, that wasn't his exact words, but that was I'm paraphrasing. They're comfortable going to training camp if an opportunity doesn't open up to acquire a defenseman. And as we know right now, the price for defensemen is bordering on the ridiculous, not only in free agent contracts, but in terms of demands for trade. So if the the price doesn't come down a little bit, then they're probably content to go into training camp with Ron Hainsey playing in their top four. As an observer, looking at this team, I, I don't think that you're making any kind of progress with Ron Hainsey being a top-four defenseman. I think their, their defense would be better if he's playing a bottom-pairing role, and the only way I could see him playing a bottom-pairing role is if they make a deal and trade one of their excess forwards to get a defenseman. And based on the situation that they're up almost against the contract limit and they're over the cap right now and in using long-term injury to open up cap space during the summer, I think they need to make a deal, but... I don't think they're going to be taken advantage of, so we'll see what happens. Now they've gone through the offseason. They got Dominic Moore, Ron Hainsey, and the big fish, Patrick Marlowe. Why did they go so hard after Patrick Marlowe, go through that process there? Well, I think that they went after Marlowe because Mike Babcock knows him from Team Canada in the Olympics. He knows the type of player he is. At 37, going on 38 years old, he still has... He still can score. He scored over 20 goals last year. He's a character guy. 
He likes his work ethic, and he has some flexibility. I mean, he can still play center, although I, I think the role that the Leafs envision him as, as a left winger. But he has the flexibility, and he's at the veteran savvy to be able to play multiple positions. And I think they like that work ethic being an influence on some of the younger players. I, I think that that was the main motivation for the signing. But I also think that, and I, st- I, I will continue to think this, is that the signing of Marlowe likely means the departure of James Van Riemsdyk because Van Riemsdyk only has a year left in the contract. And more than likely as a player in his late 20s, he's going to be looking to hit a home run on a free agent deal and based on the fact that the Leafs are going to have to sign in the next couple of years William Neander, Austin Matthews, and Mitch Marner to extensions, I don't think that Van Riemsdyk is getting the big contract from the Leafs. You probably have to accept a more of a team-friendly deal, and honestly, I, I don't think he'll do that. But I've been surprised before. I didn't think other players would take hometown discounts, and maybe he will. We'll see. Well, what would be a hometown discount for JVR? What would you think would be in that range? I'd probably think about $5 million and it would probably be a deal of 3 to 40 I think at his position in his career, he's likely to be demanding a deal comparable to the ones signed by Louis Erickson or Opozo or Bacchus last year, which was in the $6 million range anywhere from five to seven years. If he's willing to give up a couple years and significant millions of dollars, then more power to him. But I, I don't think he's going to do that. I think this is his last and best opportunity to get a long-term deal, and most players will take whoever pays them the most and the longest. If the Leafs do end up trading him either before the season starts or by the trade deadline, what would the return that they'd be looking for? Would it be futures, so draft picks and a prospect, or would they be looking for something to help them right now? If they trade him before the start of training camp, I would think it would be for a player that can play for them now, not a veteran like a 35-year-old guy, but somebody comparably aged. I mean, if they're going for a defenseman, the names have been out there, you know, guys like Chris Tanev, or, I mean, before he got traded to uh, Calgary, Travis Hamanick, uh, you know, Jacob Truba. But, you know, it's easier said than done to get those guys because, like I said, the market for defense is, is really a tough one right now. But uh, I think that that would be the goal, would be to get someone, a defenseman, preferably a right-shot defenseman who could play in the top four. But it may take more than Van Riemsdyk. He's an expiring contract unless the team they trade him to can get him re-signed and maybe they'll be in a better position to do that because they may have more cap space down the line than the Leafs have. It's going to be a tough situation. If it's a rental type of deal later toward the deadline, then I think you're talking prospects and draft picks, which right now the Leafs have so many. You're going to get those draft picks and prospects as assets, but you would prefer where they are currently to get a player who can help them now. Do you think that they could use JVR as a rental player at the deadline, especially if they're in the playoff hunt, and then be with the knowledge that he'll probably leave at the end of the year? Well, that's the that's the difficult question because if they're in the playoffs or in the playoff race and he's one of your top two scoring wingers, the left winger, Marlowe is a left winger, so he's going to be on one of the top two offensive lines, do you trade that player at that time, which would significantly affect your chances in the playoffs. It all depends on 
whether younger players playing with the Marlies or playing on a lower line can step into that gap and maybe, you know, if Carl Grunstrom has a great year with the Marlies, does he jump up to the NHL and make the Leafs feel comfortable that uh, they can succeed without Van Riemsdyk? I, I don't know, but I mean, I, I think it's tougher as you get closer to the deadline and you're a team in contention to move a player like that, but it's a question of getting something for somebody rather than getting nothing but cap space. And I still think that the Leafs right now with this current management team, they manage their assets. They know if he's walking away and we're not going to re-sign him, you've got to get something for him. You can't let him walk away for nothing. And you mentioned that, just the who's going to play with Matthews thing. Where do you slide Marlowe in that equation? Does Matthews stay with his usual line mates of Connor Brown and Zach Hyman, assuming Brown is signed, which we all assume he will? Mm-hmm. Or is he going to be kind of replacing JVR on that line? Well, I, I think at the beginning of the season, I mean, we know that they, if you remember last year, Babcock set his lines late in training camp in the preseason and then kept them pretty much together the entire year. I mean, he would move Nealander off the line, off the Matthews line, and put Brown on the road because Brown is a better defender. But Hyman was the left winger on the Matthews line for for the entire season. I think he's going to stick with Hyman. He loves Hyman. Will will Marlowe mix in on the power play with Matthews? Very possibly. If they, it also really depends on whether they trade Van Riemsdyk or not. If they trade JVR, then Marlowe probably fits in with Bozak and Marner on that line. If they keep JVR, then maybe Marlowe plays on the Matthews line, but then you've got five left wingers. You've got JVR, you've got Marlowe, you've got Matt Martin, Hyman, and you've got Komarov. So you've got one too many guys, and I cannot see Mike Babcock sitting Matt Martin as much as some, so much of the analytics aficionados want him to. He's a player that this coach trusts in a fourth-line role, and his place on the team is without question so I don't think they're going to sit him so I think that's why I continue to think there's going to be some move before the beginning of the uh, season. Now you just mentioned Komarov and him and Bozak are both in a similar position as James Van Riemsdyk. Do you think they have a chance of re-signing and Bozak the Leafs are deep at center at this point but Leo Komarov, he brings something that is pretty hard to find these days in the NHL, that intangible instigator. Well, well, the Leafs are deep at center, yes and no. There's been talk that in some circles that Bozak is more marketable right now than Van Riemsdyk because Bozak is a center and there are teams out there that need centers. I know that Larry Brooks in the New York Post reported the Rangers might be interested in Bozak if the Leafs are shopping him, or it's out of Pittsburgh that the Penguins are interested in Bozak, reuniting him with Phil Kessel after Nick Bonino signed with Nashville. The Rangers don't have a defenseman. You know, They're not going to trade McDonough or anybody of that ilk. They're not probably not going to trade a good young defenseman in Brady Shea, and I know that Brooks had referred to uh, Nick Holden as a, as a possible Offer to the Leafs, and I think the, and the, the Leafs are apparently not interested in Nick Holden. And they shouldn't, and they shouldn't be from Pittsburgh. If, if they're offering Ole Mata or something like that, then I think a deal can be done. But if you look at the depth of the of the of the Leafs organization, and you look up the middle, you know you've got Matthews, you've got Kadri as your top two, Bozek as your number three, Dominic Moore as your number four. 
where is the depth? Because after in the Mar- with the Marlies, Gauthier is out till November, December, December after breaking his leg. You know, they had to sign guys like a guy like Chris Mueller, who's a, an, a veteran AHLer, to sort of plug up the middle. There's not a, Adam Brooks is coming out of the WHL. There's not a lot of depth organizationally after after those top four, which would make me hesitate that they would trade Bozak. But do they? hasten the move of William Nylander to the middle? Do they shift Komarov to center? He's played center before. I mean, I don't I don't think that those are natural moves, so I, I think they're going to keep Bozak. And Komarov, I think they're going to re-sign simply because it's not going to be extremely expensive to re-sign him. It'll probably be around what he's making right now, and he's a valuable guy on this team in terms of leadership and camaraderie, so I, I think that I think that Komarov is going to be a leaf for a, a more than a few years well what about mitch marner he came up with the idea of him being a center at least in his mind even though he is a very small player in the nhl world could he maybe make a move in that position he could but i think he was so successful as a right winger last year that they're probably not going to mess with success right now plus the one concern and you know he was very slippery last year you know he he has that knack of being able to avoid contact and he's good defensively, so defensive responsibility, he, he can handle the defensive responsibilities. The problem would be in terms of the matchup. I mean, Matthews would be the number one guy. He's the big guy, and he'll face the Ryan Getzloffs or the Ryan Johansons or the Jonathan Taves on most nights. If Marner is a two or three, he's not going to match up against the, the biggest guys up the middle, but he's not the biggest player, and he relies on speed and guile. And I think that he, right now, he fits better as a winger, and maybe in a couple years he would fit as a potential move to center. But I, I just get the impression that the guy that gets moved up the middle is going to be Nealander and, and not and not Marner because Nealander is a little stronger, a little bigger, and you know, is a natural center. So I think that, and maybe not this year, but maybe next year, they move Nealander up the middle. I want to move on to Austin Matthews now. As we all know, the fan base has been clamoring for a captain for a long time, and it's been a foregone conclusion that they believe that Matthews will eventually be the captain of the team. Now, unlike Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, Jonathan Taves, the guys who have been really young captains, Austin Matthews has never really been a captain before he's never been the face of a team before hey, he's never really been on the team for a long period of time before do you think this should be a concern for the Leafs and uh, do you think there's a rush to make him a captain I don't think there's a rush when it comes to naming a team captain if you comments of Lou Lamorello and Mike Babcock at the end of the season press conference they basically both were in lockstep and said you know there's no rush Connor McDavid was made the captain at 19 years old, I believe. I don't think, you know, the Leafs want to set a precedent and have have Austin Matthews be the youngest captain in Maple Leafs history. I think they just, they know he's a very grounded kid. He handled the media extremely well with all the hubbub that was coming with being the top pick, with the, the pressure and the focus of the Toronto media on him. He handled it great. I just think that you know they don't they don't see that there really is a necessity to name a captain right away. I I think he's going to be the captain. 
I just think that they'll wait probably until the fall of 2018 and then name him then. But right now you've got enough veteran leadership around there. You've added a veteran in Patrick Marlowe, who's been a team captain before. You've got guys like Hainsey and uh, Dominic Moore, who they've added. So I think what they'll do, they probably will make Matthews an assistant captain and then the following year name him captain. But I don't think there's any rush. And lastly, as we've seen with the Connor McDavid contract, the expectations with these contracts have really gone up. Where do you see that contract affecting Austin Matthews come next offseason or when his entry-level deal is done the year after? Well, I mean, McDavid won the heart in the second year. So for Matthews to be able to demand something akin to $12.5 million and being the highest-paid player in the league, he's probably going to have to come close to winning the heart in his second year. Now, if you put the rookie year of Matthews and the rookie year of McDavid side-by-side, side, Matthews' year was better, but he stayed healthy, scored 40 goals, and McDavid got hurt. But that's a pretty big step to climb to go from a 40-year, 40 40-goal 40 year and then go even one step further. Rookies, sometimes, a lot of times, that second year, they take a step back. <clears throat> now, supreme talents like McDavid, they got better. I think Matthews will get better, but it's going to have to take a really big year, probably better than last year, for him to be able to go to the Leafs and say, okay, I want to be close to what McDavid is making. If he has a good year, I think he's going to probably end up anywhere between – eight to ten million. I mean that's a big range, but I think that's depending on whether they sign him the year before he becomes an RFA or they wait till the contract expires. The who knows. But I think he's gonna be at best equal to what Taves and Kane are making. At worst, you know, making it in the eight and a half to nine million range. And we don't know whether it's gonna be an eight year deal or a five year deal. So there are a lot of factors. And going off what you just said with rookies going into their second year, we saw that ourselves watching the Leafs for a long period of time with Luke Shen and Nazem Kadri. They went above and beyond their expectations in their first year, and then everybody expected them to take the step forward the next year when that maybe wasn't realistic. So that is something we need to watch for, not only with Matthews, but with Nylander, Marner, Connor Brown, Zach Hyman as well. Yeah, I mean, you had on some nights six, seven, sometimes eight rookies in the lineup. you got to remember, this team, all those rookies played above expectations. They had no injuries. They had good goaltending from Freddie Anderson. And they made the playoffs in Game 81. Now, they're improved this year. They've added Marlowe. They've added the veterans, like we mentioned before. But if a couple of those rookies have bad sophomore years, then somebody's going to have to pick up the slack. And if there's nobody there to pick up the slack, or if there's an injury that happens to a key player, then this team's going to take a step back. I mean, it's not a guarantee. I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're close to being a contender for the Stanley Cup. Yeah, but they're also close to falling out of the playoffs if a few things don't go right. So it's a very tenuous situation with this team, and everybody's optimistic, and I, I get that. But, you know, people have to also be careful and realize that, you know, rookies don't all just go up 
in their second year. Some of them take a step back. Yeah, and what you just said, just as close as they are to being a contender, they're as close to falling off and missing the playoffs is exactly the reason probably they didn't want to trade a future first-round pick for Travis Hamanick. Well, yeah, I, I think that this organization is very hesitant to make the mistakes of previous administrations and trade a first-round pick when you really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think if they if they make a trade for a defenseman in the summer, they will trade existing pieces on their roster. They will trade Van Riemsdyk. They will trade Tyler Bozak. They might even trade a young player like Kasper Kapanen. I do not think they will trade a first-round pick in any way because they know that things can take a step back and then you, you know, you've traded maybe a top 10 pick if things go badly. And there's no reason to do that. There's enough assets that are in the organization right now that you can put in a trade and not risk a future draft pick, which could be a high pick. And hopefully this team will be able to take that next step forward. Thank you again, Mike, for joining me. This has been a great information session about our Toronto Maple Leafs, and hopefully you come back in the future. No problem, Adam, anytime. Thank you. That was Michael Ogello of HockeyBuzz.com. Let me apologize to begin with. Let me apologize for what I'm about to say. But trying to be genuine was harder than it seemed and somehow I got caught up in between For the second part of the podcast I want to talk about the NFL in Toronto more specifically how the Bills failed the city of Toronto when the Bills in Toronto series was still a thing The biggest problem with this series was that there was a lack of research and knowledge about the fan base here in Toronto There was an assumption that one everyone in Toronto was a Bills fan two Toronto NFL fans will pay just about anything because it's the NFL. Those two are pretty bad assumptions because it ignores the hard work that the NFL had already done to market itself within Canada. Throughout its history, the NFL would market the entire league to Canadians through their primetime games. In some markets, like Southern Ontario, it will skew towards Buffalo because of the proximity, but mostly it was highlighted by their Sunday and Monday night games. Because of this, Canadian NFL fans' allegiances have been spread out throughout the league. Listeners may have saw that I made an informal poll on Twitter and Facebook asking fans who their favorite team was. 38 people answered me and I got 19 different teams. As well, 4 of the 6 people who said it was the Bills qualified that by saying they were more fans of the NFL, but not one particular team, but if they had to choose it would be Buffalo. I imagine that there are more Bills fans out there, especially in the southern Ontario region like Hamilton and Niagara, but the people who Rogers and the Buffalo Bills were marketing to were the types that were fans of every team. So in 2008, when the Bills made their first appearance in Toronto, they didn't know what they were walking into. At first, Bills were open to the idea, with receiver Steve Johnson saying that it was a great way to increase the NFL and the Bills' influence in Canada. But as the games happened, there was constant complaining that the Rogers Center was either too quiet because nobody had a rooting interest, or that there was more fans rooting for the opposing team than the Bills. The problem here is simply supply and demand. With Rogers and Ralph Wilson thinking that they can charge an arm and a leg for tickets, the Bills fans that were in Toronto scoffed at that idea and just drove the hour and a half to Buffalo for normal prices. 
the other NFL fans in Toronto basically showed up based on who the Bills' opponent happened to be that year because those teams are harder to find and harder to see. My general feeling about it was that Ralph Wilson, the Buffalo Bills, thought that they were doing the fans of Toronto a favor by giving them one game. And to quote Sean Avery, Toronto doesn't want Buffalo sloppy seconds. Had the focus been on the NFL and not the Bills, things may have turned out differently. If it were a different team there every year, it would have more became an event in Toronto rather just one game out of 16. This is what's happening in London, England right now, and it's doing really well. But because the focus was on the Bills, fans didn't feel the product was worth paying a premium for. The other thing that was well publicized was the vocal outcry that the games were going to be in this dome stadium, which may give the opposing team an advantage. That, to me, is a weak argument because either you're better than the opposing team or you're not. However, Ralph Wilson and the Bills knew what the situation was. So did Rodgers, and definitely the NFL knew that. So if the players had a beef with that, they should have taken it up with the NFLPA because that is something that can be collectively bargained for. I'm not saying that the Bills in Toronto series was completely the fault of the Buffalo Bills. Rodgers had a big part to play in this. This was a ploy to make Toronto look like a viable market, which backfired big time for many of the reasons that I just said. Once Terry Bagula outbid Bon Jovi for ownership of the Bills, that was the end of Toronto's plan to move the Bills to Toronto permanently. But that also hurt their future chances of getting a team because of the negative media that it received and the lack of crowds for regular season games, no matter what the reasoning was for it. It's unfortunate because, in my opinion, a Toronto NFL team would instantly become the number two team in this city behind the Maple Leafs, provided that it was run properly. There are other factors stopping the NFL from coming to Toronto, such as tailgating and the Canadian broadcasting laws that differ from the states, but I'm hoping to find a guest that can explain those situations better more than I can. In the end, as a Toronto sports fan, I feel disrespected by the way the Bills in, in Toronto series was handled, and I hope that one day can be rectified. That's all for this week's show. I want to thank Michael Ajello from Hockey Buzz for joining me once again. And if you want to give me any feedback, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Kirschenblatt, and stay tuned for the next episodes either on iTunes, SoundCloud, or KirschSports.com. Have a good week, people!